0: Ashley, have you heard about the secret for Good Skin?
1: I'm glad you asked, Michael. Good Skin, one word, is the preeminent bicostal destination in Los Angeles and New York for holistic skincare in a luxurious setting. Their team of expertly trained clinicians will work with you to create a hyper-personalized, innovative treatment strategy to improve one's appearance. They provide everything from injections and non-surgical lifts to minimal, non-invasive treatments such as laser fillers, microdermabrasion, ultrasound therapy, and more.
0: How and where does all this happen?
1: With locations in Los Angeles, in Brentwood, and in the NoHo neighborhood of New York, and a pop up location is coming to 50 Jobs Lane in Southampton from August 11th to 13th. You can find out more at GoodskinClinics.com. Happy Saturday. It's July 31st, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail.
0: I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show.
1: Michael, how is it possible that we only have 1 day left in July and then it's August and then summer is essentially over?
0: How is it possible that you like are a downer immediately? Like, I don't know, <laughs> It's Memorial Day, you blink, it's July 4th, you blink, and all of a sudden it's Labor Day. And like, we're going to be putting on wool again very soon. But for now, let's just enjoy Saturday.
1: Let's just enjoy Saturday. What a week, Michael. Have you been watching the Olympics?
0: I've been dipping in and out of the Olympics. Happy for Katie Ledecky. That's been, that was exciting. And also that 17-year-old young swimmer from Alaska who broke my heart by winning the gold. That was beautiful.
1: That was amazing. I loved seeing that shot of her friends and family at home in Alaska. Like those guys could not stop dancing. It was so cool.
0: Yeah, Lydia Jacoby was the young swimmer. But you and I were talking earlier in one of the editorial idea meetings about how to cover the Olympics. And you were saying that you liked the idea that there were no spectators because you could actually hear the athletes talking to themselves or their teammates, but which is that silence in the auditorium. But I think what also has happened with no spectators in the arenas and, and the stadiums at the Olympics is you've gotten those moments exactly like you're talking about where her classmates at high school up in Alaska, these these viral videos now of people reacting in these viewing parties have so much more emotion to them, right? It's filled in for the lack of spectators in person, right?
1: This year, because of this newfound intimacy that the games have due to the lack of spectators, I feel like we're really getting a different lens on how teammates are interacting with one another, how they're interacting with the competition. And then we also get to see yet another facet of their humanity by going into the living rooms of their friends and family back home for these viewing parties.
0: It made me long for, I remember a few Olympics ago when Michael Phelps was in that psych-out room and, and with his headphones on, but you, you'd you long to know like what he was saying to himself in some of those pools. To hear an athletes psych themselves up or to psych up their teammates, it's like that hot mic taken to the nth degree.
1: And I'm loving having Phelps this year as a commentator. That's fun. And Nastia Lukin, too. I mean, it's they're both really telegenic and great on TV and talented in that arena, as well as being talented in the pool and on the beams, right? It's been really fu- I think it's a really strong season for the television piece of it, right? The Olympics is entertainment. And we've seen, obviously, some incredible, inspiring feats of athleticism and sportsmanship.
0: All right, so let's, speaking of feats of athleticism and going for the gold, let's go to the issue. It's a very athletic, nimble Nailing the dismount issue, Something
1: right? we strive for every week, Michael. So we start with the Taliban.
0: Let's start with the Taliban.
1: For the last few weeks, our views from here, you know, our first column that kicks off the issue have been just so powerful and and taking you into these parts of the world that you wouldn't normally have access to. And this is a great example of that. We have Saad Mosseini and... He has built quite a media empire there for himself uh, with his brothers. They established the Mobi Group, which is Afghanistan's largest media company, after the Taliban regime was toppled in 2001. And so he takes us inside what's actually happening there right now. And it's very moving.
0: Yeah, I think what's Saad's perspective is he says, look, what's going to happen after the U.S. withdraws, and what happens with the Taliban in Afghanistan? But, you know, he points out some of the hopeful things that have happened because he built this media and, and brought in an FM station and television. And, you know, he says, like, there's a lot of things that make Afghanistan ripe for the good kind of change. He says, it's not going to go back to the country it was under the Taliban. Afghans now live in towns and cities, and the majority of the youth are literate and receiving an education and have access to the Internet. He says, more Afghans than ever accept the rights of women and minorities. And the country's media revolution, you know, which he was part of as a change, the way Afghans see themselves and each other and how they engage with the wider world. But the world does have a responsibility to make sure it doesn't fall to the Taliban. But he, as he says, it's because it, its connection to the world through the media has hopefully made the citizens there less likely to slide into the 14th century as the Taliban would like them to.
1: A striking statistic that he cites in this piece is that Afghanistan now has the youngest population outside of sub-Saharan Africa. And that's really going to have major implications for or the way that media is consumed and created in the country. It's just vastly different from how it was pre-2001. And I've never seen this show, Michael, but I want to see it. Afghan Star is have you ever seen Afghan Star?
0: I never saw it, but I learned about it in his piece because it was, as he says, six years before The Voice hit the U.S., there was an Afghan version of it, right? Afghan star.
1: Yeah, and promoting women singers and rappers. And the show's now in its 15th season, and it's been responsible for creating a lot of the starring musicians that are beloved across the entire region. So certainly we want to stay in touch with Saad and, and get his take on all of this as it unfolds. But it is a pretty fascinating moment in terms of media history as well
0: for sure and its its ability to change perceptions of within a country for the people for the better and and outside of a country
1: well, Michael, on a decidedly different note, let's take a little journey to Wall Street. You edited a great piece this week by Bill Cohan about the Bible reading, Trump supporting 65 year old woman who is the hottest stock picker in town. Tell us about Kathy Wood.
0: That's right. Kathy Wood, as you just summed up, uh, quite an anachronism in terms of Wall Street is always sort of looking for its investment gurus. They're usually these kind of loudmouth alpha bros on TV hitting buzzers and talking up stocks. Kathy Wood, as you mentioned, 65 year old, devout Christian, widowed, divorced mother of three, who reads the Bible each morning. But she has, in the last couple years, become one of basically Wall Street's hottest stock picker through her investment firm, ARK Investment Management, ARK, A-R-K, like the ARK of the Covenant, which is what it's named for. And less than seven years after she started the firm, it now has more than 53 billion with a B dollars under its management. And she's created this kind of fan, these rabbit fans, some of whom are day traders, some of whom are Wall Street guys. But you know, they've even, they now buy t-shirts with phrases like, in Kathy, we trust, or the queen of the bull market on them. They populate these Reddit bulletin boards saying, Kathy, give me my my daily shot of hopium, opium with an H, because she, they believe that she knows what stocks to pick. Now she's big into disruption and tech stocks. And she's made a lot of moves around Tesla and Roku and Zoom and Zillow and uh, things like that. So she's made a lot of money for people, made a lot of money for herself. Her net worth is $250 million estimated. But she comes with, like all people when the stock market, she comes with her own controversy. And some of that is that people feel that as bill said she's talking her own book and by that it's these stock pickers and guys people who appear on tv cnbc and other places to talk about stocks you know you have to it's important remember they're not just talking about stocks that they're interested in but oftentimes they have big portfolios that involve these stocks and is it in their interest to talk them up on tv and get people to buy them and to then send the price up and then to perhaps sell off some of that earnings it happens as Wood has done with some of her stocks. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just some people say here, it makes it that there's she could be creating a tech bubble 3.0 with some people because talking up these stocks at the same time when there's a lot of people getting into the market who maybe are more susceptible and can't afford to take the losses that might come on the other side of it.
1: Anthony Scaramucci refers to her in the piece as a national treasure. But Michael, is it too much of a stretch to say that she does have the kind of star power as a female Warren Buffett.
0: She's kind of slid into that role, but some people think that she's preying on the gullibility of that Joe Six Pack investor, as it were. And when she sold $180 million of her Tesla stock just weeks after sending it into the stratosphere by quoting that the price of it was going to keep rising. It's those things that make people on the other side of the mooch question what's going on. So it's a great piece of reporting and analysis by William Cohen.
1: All right. Well, speaking of money and bold females who managed to acquire a lot of it, let's move on over to London. We have a great piece by Joseph Bulmore about Lulu Lakatos, audacious lady who posed as a gem expert, and swapped $5.8 million worth of diamonds at Boodles in London. What a piece.
0: Yeah, it's a trial that's kind of captivating London right now. This caper happened five years ago, 2016, when Lulu, as she's known, walked into Boodles in Mayfair, a 225-year-old gem dealer, and basically pulled off a Ocean's Eleven-worthy heist. And it turns out, as the chairman of Boodle's said in court this week, part of what uh, distracted him was her cleavage. She turns out to be a Russian who showed up there and uh, he was rather bamboozled by her unorthodox appearance.
1: I mean, the whole thing is kind of brilliant. So she poses as the gem expert, inspects these diamonds, wraps them up in tissue paper, and oh, all of a sudden she throws them in her bag. And the staff at Boodle's asks her politely, oh, please take them out. We need to see the gems at all times. And she's like, "Oh, what are you worrying about? And it's like, this is where this English attitude of voiding a scene at all costs comes into play because she didn't seem like a jewel thief, right? But it turns out that's exactly what she was. And she managed to get away with it temporarily anyway.
0: Right. It seems like she, you know, they inspected her bag. They think now she may have had a false bottom or they had an old sort of switcheroo. So she pulls out the quote unquote, little pouch that the the diamonds are in. But she's in that moment that it's in it, she's distracted them. And it's a pouch with just some rocks in it, which they don't know until she's out of the shop and on her way through Mayfair and then on the channel back to France where she escapes. Now, the twist comes, she is part of her defense, her remarkable defense. She has now claimed that the femme fatale at the heart of the gambit was in fact her younger sister, Liliana. And Lulu alleges that Liliana borrowed her passport, dyed her hair gray to resemble her then 55-year-old sister and traveled from France to England to carry out the heist. Conveniently for the defense... Liliana, her sister, died in a car crash in the family's native Romania in 2019. So it can be interesting to see where the trial goes with that defense, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And... That is not the only thing that people are talking about in London, Michael. As Rachel Johnson writes in this week's issue, the social season is back in full swing. And it's like many things in life, somewhat of a mixed bag.
0: The UK, which emerged from its lockdown, it's a Freedom Day only in the last week. And in doing so, kind of stepped right into the height of the summer social season with Ascot coming up and other things. And Rachel Johnson, the Sister of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, takes us through, as she says, the long, long British lockdown that just ended has tested the maximum that fun is more work than work and sort of going full swing back into the long, delayed social season has kind of tested everyone's skills once again, right?
1: Yeah. And everyone is buzzing about the purported new ambassador from the United States, who is rumored to be Jane Hartley, 71-year-old Biden campaign donor and a former ambassador to France during the Obama administration. She's married to a wealthy investment banker, and she was a major bundler for the Biden campaign. And as Rachel reports, the first question on everyone's lips is not how experienced is she, but instead it's how rich, how much money does she have? Because running Winfield House and in all of its glory, it takes an awful lot of money. According to one guest, one guest heard that it cost $70 million in expenses for an ambassador to do a full term in style. That was not an issue for Trump's guy, Woody Johnson, who was a billionaire, thanks to the work of some earlier members of his family. And as Rachel writes, Woody was great. And I say that largely because he let the prime minister, Rachel's brother, Boris Johnson, and his siblings use the tennis court on the grounds of Winfield, which contains the second largest private garden in London after Buckingham Palace. So she loved Woody. Let's hope that uh, Jane invites her back for a doubles tournament sometime soon.
0: Yeah, I think it's always the shocker to some people is that, you know, you become an ambassador to the these super prestigious posts like the UK or France, London, Paris or Rome, not because you're a diplomatic person or you surely raised a lot of money for the person who Goes into the Oval Office, and then you're expected to entertain and host events, and oftentimes you have to put in your own money for that. So you need someone who has very, very, very deep pockets. Someone like Kathy Wood, for instance. Speaking of Kathy Wood, over sixty-five-year-old stock picker and the new change in the guard at the UK. But I've been dying to ask you about this story we have this week called "The Gray Ladies." which are, uh, sorry, about a new crop of over 40 influencers on social media who are sort of causing waves on Instagram and TikTok with their fashion styling, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's about time, Michael, honestly. Like, we love you guys in Gen Z, but you guys have been overrepresented on these platforms for a while. It's time to get the over 40s involved. And there's a wonderful piece in the issue about this new crop of influencers that are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond who are showing off their personal style and the fans are going gaga for them. And it's not just the fans and the hordes of the internet, but it's also the fashion industry at large. And they're signing on for major sponsorships because it turns out that many of the people on the internet with a lot of purchasing power are not the 19-year-olds. In fact, they are the over. And so when you have these influencers like Grease Ganem out of Toronto posting photos of themselves in great looking clothes. It turns out that those clothes are really selling. So this is a really fun piece that looks into the personal style of these. They're calling them the influencers, Silver influencers, get it? And we take a look at who these people are and what makes them tick and why they're so popular. And the cool thing about it is they is it's truly a global bunch. They're sort of all over the world. And oftentimes the accounts are run by their children who are, you know, a little bit more tech savvy from time to time, but it's a great recipe for success and kudos to them and congratulations.
0: My favorite person profiled in this piece is an 89-year-old Japanese man who is wearing streetwear inflected outfits that are curated and photographed by his grandson Kota and posted on Instagram under the tag Okanobunobu. That's H-O-K-A-N-O-B-U-N obu and the project started as coda the grandson was trying to keep his grandfather's spirits up after his grandmother died so but he so he was sort of dressing up in clothes taking pictures of him putting him on that so wonderful to see these photographs of this beaming 89 year old man wearing great clothes it's caught the attention of other people on instagram as well fashion brands like studio nicholson who who have been trying to get him to wear his clothes so it's uh it's the power of fashion on the right kind of people it's a great little piece
1: Well, Michael, speaking of over 40 influencers who are absolutely dominating the subconscious of the style set, we have a very special guest today, Michael. The one and only Julia Hart, star of the show we cannot stop watching or talking about, My Unorthodox Life. Michael, let's take a break to discuss some pressing matters. Good Skin.
0: Are you talking about that elusive thing that everyone seems to want or the new bicoastal destination for holistic anti-aging treatments?
1: Both. At Goodskin's clinics, the cosmetic effects of aging can be addressed in a healthy, thoughtful, natural manner. Fractional laser treatments, the latest developments in injectables, and PRP microneedling are only some of the services available to ensure that you look and feel your very best.
0: GoodSkin's clinics are located in the Brentwood neighborhood of Los Angeles and the NoHo area of New York City. A pop-up location will open at 50 Jobes Lane in Southampton from August 11th to the 13th. You can learn more or book an appointment at GoodSkinClinics.com.
1: See you there. Well, we're so happy to have you here. Everyone is talking about My Unorthodox Life, your new show on Netflix, of which you are an executive producer. It's nine episodes. It's unscripted. People are calling it a new type of Keeping Up with the Kardashians because every personality in your family factors heavily on the show and is compulsively interesting and watchable. So, Oh, thank you. I want to know, first of all, give our listeners, A, the sort of the story of your last 10 years, how you left the community, the Orthodox community that you were in. How many hours is the show? (laughs) So eight years ago, you left your community, you began a new career in fashion, you started a shoe line, you became the creative director of La Perla. You met a wonderful man whom you married, Silvio, who was in the show, whom we love. And you are now the CEO of Elite World Group, which is a massive modeling and talent agency. And now you are the executive producer and star of a Netflix show. How did this all come together in eight years? Julia, have you always had this many ideas? Have you always been this prolific?
2: I've always had all of these things in my mind and that's where the torture came in because I had all of this in my head. I was drawing and designing for nobody because I wasn't supposed to be interested in fashion. And I wasn't, I was supposed to be content with being a wife and a mother. And believe me, I love being a mother. I didn't love being a wife so much, but that wasn't because of my ex-husband is a lovely person. We're really great friends. Like we'll go out to dinner together. He's a lovely, wonderful human being. The reason our marriage was so miserable is a, we should never have gotten married. I didn't know him. I didn't choose him and he didn't know or choose me either. I mean, we were both prisoners. And the second part is he was taught that his role, his responsibility as my husband was to do certain things like for example when we first got married we were told that the minute you finish having sex you have to go to separate beds so there's no cuddling there's no you know connection it's so cold I mean just a thousand things are like there's this concept in, in my world that's which means don't have a lot of conversations with your with a woman. And the other thing that he was supposed to do was police me, right? Julia, cover your elbows. Julia, don't sit this way. Julia, don't talk to men so much. The fact that even though we're all women doesn't mean we're all the same and doesn't mean that what makes you happy is what's going to make me happy. And our role in life should not be prescribed, cemented in stone and given us as a fate complete from the moment we're born. Have you seen the
1: show Unorthodox?
2: I read the book Here. and I saw the show.
1: What was going through your mind when you first encountered her story? I was just so happy that
2: someone was saying something. And see how much she got attacked. I mean, she really got attacked and she didn't stop. And that, to me, is the ultimate bravery.
0: So that's a question I had, Julia, for you, because they dispatch... Moishi, who I call bad Moishi, because he likes to gamble and smoke and drink. And he sort of goes, was there ever anyone dispatched after you to sort of bring you back to the fold?
2: Nobody was dispatched after me. What I had occur instead was that other than three people, everyone dropped me like a hot potato. I didn't exist. I, I had my own personal exodus. I think what was most difficult for me is that people would come to my children and say, oh, we're so sorry about your mother. As if like I had a disease, you know, or some kind of mental breakdown because I was not okay with being told to shut up all the time. It took me eight years, eight years. From the moment I decided to the moment I left was eight years.
0: Which is, again, when I pause on that, that's an incredible, to work up the courage and to then step out. But to me, and and you, you know, you get pieces of this in the show, but I've always wanted to know, sort of stepping out. And then like anyone leaving any immersive community, did you find a support group or a therapist or anything? Or did you just like, I'm now being living on another planet now, right?
2: No, such a great question. I love that you asked that because it was such a difficult And I don't think people understand what it's like because you're not equipped to live in the outside world. And that doesn't mean that everyone in my community is unhappy. I don't think everyone in the 1800s was unhappy. I don't think every woman before they got the right to vote or to own their own property was unhappy, but it's a different world because when I left my community, I made myself a promise that I would not tell a single soul about really about my life until I had accomplished something because I didn't want to be a victim. I didn't want, to me, my life is divided into two pieces. The first 43 years of my life are what was done to me. The last eight are what I've accomplished. And I wanted to accomplish something before I talked about my past. And so, but you can't be a 43-year-old woman without a past. And that's another thing, Michael, that I don't think people realize. You all have history. You've got reputations. You did something in your 20s. And then in your... 30s. And those things created a story about who you are that you rest on, right? Think about it. What are we? We are a compendium of our memories. And what are our memories? Our memories are the vestiges of our action. So I didn't have a past. I didn't have a single soul in the universe outside of my community who knew me. So I pretended that I was in my early 30s, Until the day I became creative director. The first time I actually told my real age was the same week that I became creative director. What happened was when I took over elite world group, I met women from all different walks of life, from every ethnicity and culture and sexual orientation, and I heard their stories. And I realized that even in this world, even in the 21st century, there are so many women who are told their entire lives, be polite, be nice, wait your turn, ask permission. I don't see men being told that thing. No offense, Michael, but I don't see men being told those kind of things. And I realized that I don't have a choice. This is a story I have to tell because I did it. I changed my life 43 without a college degree, without an education, without knowing a single human being in the outside world. So if I can do it, if this crazy bitch can do it, anyone can do it.
1: I think, Julia, you just encapsulated the attitude that people just love about you, right? You have this totally magnetic personality and you're so fun to watch Thank you. and you're so positive.
2: But you can have more. Think about, I keep on saying this over and over again. I was just reading about Germaine Greer, who was in the 70s and was this massive feminist. And I was reading about her and she writes that in 1970, women working at the BBC... Still weren't allowed to wear trousers, and women were refused mortgages and their own right and required the signature of a male guarantor. That's 1970. We're talking 50 years ago. Now, those people who demanded that they can wear pants, which, by the way, I'm, in my world, you're not allowed to do, those women who demanded that they should have equal rights, that it doesn't mean that they have to live under a man's rule, were they claiming that all women who lived that way were unhappy? No, it doesn't have, I'm sorry. Excuse my language. It has shit all to do with who's happy and who's not happy. I don't, you want to be happy? Fantastic. I want your daughters to have more than you. I want them to be happy because they can be wives and mothers and professors and lawyers and presidents if they want to. I want them to know they can have Everything, And that's what it's about.
1: Well, Julia, thank you so much for speaking with us.
2: Thank you. Thank you guys so much. It was really fun speaking with you. I appreciate you giving me the time and I hope to see you soon.
1: Thanks so much. Absolutely. See you at Fashion Week. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, Michael, I want to get one of those bracelets. It says WWJD standing for what would Julia do? I love this woman.
0: I think she'd tell you just to get really high heels. <laughs>
1: All right, so before we head off into the weekend, our last day of July, anything at all to recommend?
0: I do. I have one thing to recommend, but before I get to that, I need to make a quick amend last week in my enthusiasm for my recommend, a very astute, couple, few astute listeners point out, I failed to mention the name of the film I was so passionate about, which was Le Circle Rouge, The Red Circle, and you can find it on Apple Plus TV. That's where I was able to watch it, so I highly recommend that. But my choice for this week is, I think it's a timely one in some ways. I don't know if you saw the news this week that they set the date for a concert, a free concert in Central Park, August 21st. It's going to be We Love New York City, the homecoming concert. It's got an incredible lineup. Everyone from Bruce Springsteen to LL Cool J, Elvis Costello, Carlos Santana, Andrea Bocelli, even Barry Manilow. It's going to be produced by Clive Davis and it's going to be free to anyone who's vaccinated. So you've got that coming up in a few weeks. But if you want a great kind of look back at something that happened 50 one years ago, I highly recommend Summer of Soul, the new documentary by Questlove, which takes a look at the forgotten 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival that took place over six weeks. It is a magnificent film. It might be one of the best concert films ever made because you've got everyone from Nina Simone to Sly Stone to B.B. King to Mahalia Jackson singing over the course of, as I said, six weeks. There's so many powerful moments in this film. But what's amazing is it had, all this footage was shot and then it sat in a basement for 50 years until Questlove put it together. And he not only puts it together, but really, really brings a nice context to it by cutting back and forth to some other archival film and, and locating it. You know, This was the summer after Martin Luther King had been shot. Neil Armstrong was in that same summer landing on the moon. The riots had only just happened. And uh, it's a beautiful powerful, lovely, life-affirming, joyful film. And it's just what a treat to see it. And I'll get you excited for the free concert coming up in a few weeks. And it's available on Hulu.
1: Marvelous. All right, well, Michael, I have another film to recommend as well. I did it. I saw Roadrunner, the documentary by Morgan Neville about the life of Anthony Bourdain, or rather the last 20 years of the life of Anthony Bourdain. I loved this movie. It's in theaters now. It will be streaming at some point on HBO Max and CNN, but do not delay go see it because we want to hear what you thought about it. You haven't seen it yet, Michael, have you?
0: I have not. Tell me all about it.
1: Oh, Okay. Well, look, I must confess, I loved the book Kitchen Confidential. I didn't watch Anthony Bourdain all that often on television, but he had this visceral way of talking about his work and his worldview that always really appealed to me. And I think appealed to a lot of people, right? Who loved him and his show and his work. So this documentary picks up kind of after the success of Kitchen Confidential and takes us on a a rambling trip through his life and journey as a television star and kind of gives us a picture of what happened at the end. As everyone knows, he committed suicide in 2018. And this takes us a little bit deeper into the circumstances behind that and kind of where his headspace was. And there's a bit of controversy around the film for a few different reasons. Aja Argento is a figure that looms largely in it because they were dating prior to his death. And the film does not interview her. And several reports that I read, she's kind of cast as a little bit of a villain in this, sort of the Yoko Ono-esque character that was responsible, at least in part, for the downfall of Bourdain. The story that the film tells is that he was a jilted lover, right? Who had these depressive tendencies and perhaps some mental health issues and all kinds of things going on, but ultimately, she was spotted with another man. The tablets took photos of that, and Anthony Bourdain killed himself, right? It's kind of like a pat telling of the story. Now, I think Neville does his best to try to give a little bit of nuance there, but because her voice isn't in the film, it's a little questionable. Anyway, so there we go. But what I love about this movie is it really reminded me of why I think Anthony Bourdain has such resonance as a cultural figure, which is that so many of these icons of culture that we look to now promise to have answers, right? Or they promised to take us on the path towards a better life, right? And Bourdain never did that. He never promised that. I think why we all liked him is because that he was going out there in search of, of answers, right? He was a questioning spirit. He was a storyteller and someone who was on a perpetual life journey, but he never really thought that, he never promised or suggested that finding those answers or gaining that information was going to make life any easier or better. Anyway, highly recommend it. It's a great opportunity to revisit his work and to remember why he was such an important guy. Lovely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Michael. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for joining us and a special thanks to our sponsor, Good Skin. And on that note, Michael, will you please read us out?
0: To. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. And most of all, thank you for joining us.